and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're listening to an interview you and I did with the writer Tochi Anyabuchi about his latest novel, Goliath. Yeah, and this book has been getting a lot of buzz, um, so it's out there. And I also liked it because, you know, even though I... I don't read a whole lot of sci-fi, but I think what I loved about this particular book is how present it felt. You know, it tackles issues of race, colonization, and gentrification, which, you know, are not totally unusual topics in science fiction, you know, as my husband would leer at me from across the room as a super Star Trek fan. But it does manage to make it feel, first it's set in 2050, we get into this in the interview, it's set in 2050, in a time that feels very much not that different from our own. And so it was an interesting way of thinking about what the future is going to look like for us. And the book gives us one kind of rather nightmarish vision of a world that very much could, I think, come to pass. Mm, Yeah. How much science fiction do you read, Eric? Do you have any favorites of of the very large and capacious genre? One of my struggles with science fiction has often been the world building that I find really overwhelming. So, you know, my husband campaigned and campaigned and campaigned for me to read The Three-Body Problem. And while I did enjoy that novel, I was felt just overwhelmed by, you know, same with anything that I've picked up from Kim Stanley Robinson, I find kind of overwhelming. But, you know, I always love the worlds that they kind of bring you into and the way that they make you think about a world that is animated with conflicts that are similar to your world, but allow you to think about them in a different way. True. Yeah. And I I guess I tend to gravitate towards sci-fi writers whose worlds seem just like ours, but just slightly tweaked, like Philip K. Dick or um, Octavia Butler. Oh God! Of course, yes. yeah. It's so it's, weird. It's, I don't tend to think of them as sci-fi, but they are sci-fi. Oh my God! Writers. Those are they're, yeah. the, they're the the reigning king and queen of sci-fi. Yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. among many others, but yeah. Well, and and maybe Tochi Onyabuchi is on his way to joining them. So let's listen to the interview. Let's do it. We have Tochi Onyibuchi with us on the line today. Tochi is the author of Beast Made of Night, a YA novel that won the Alube Nomo Award for Best Speculative Fiction by an African, as well as Crown of Thunder, which was the sequel to Beast Made of Night, and War Girls. He is also the author of the novella Riot Baby, which won the New England Book Award for Fiction and an Alex Award, and was a finalist for a slew of awards, including the prestigious Hugo and Nebula Awards. Tochi holds an MFA in screenwriting from Tisch School of the Arts which I'm very happy to hear as an NYU alum myself, a master's degree in economic law from the Paris Institute of Political Studies, and a JD from Columbia Law School. So he's incredibly credentialed. He joins us today to talk about his debut adult sci-fi novel, Goliath. Told through a series of vignettes, Goliath meditates on a world destroyed by environmental and viral catastrophe in which the privileged, largely white population has decamped for a space colony, leaving a group that is predominantly people of color behind on the Earth where they try to eke out an existence amid the ruins. 
delving into such topics as colonization, gentrification, and the racial conflict that courses through American history and, in the novel, firmly shapes its future and the future of the world in the 2050s, Goliath is a haunting and incisive look at a world that could very much be our own. Thanks so much for joining us, Tochi. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Tochi, I wanted to start off with the world of your novel and how you imagined it and how different you imagine it from being than the one that we currently all share. What stage in the future is this world from ours? I didn't realize until a ways in the significance of 2050 as a marker, because by the time the latest IPCC report on climate change had come out, you know, I was multiple drafts in nearing the finish line of the book, but the report came out and I believe it was like the sixth report on climate change or something of that sort. And 2050 was listed as like the year the apocalypse happens, right? Like that's the point of no return. If we keep on its current course, the planet will have increased temperature by, I think it was like 1.5 degrees centigrade. And then all this horrific stuff was going to happen. And in the world of Goliath, set in the 2050s, that's very much the reality of the characters. There's radiation poisoning everywhere, climate-induced environmental collapse. I think what was foremost in my mind creating this world was that people were going to have to live in it. So it wasn't necessarily that we were going to have environmental collapse and it was going to wipe out humanity. It was that we were going to have environmental collapse and people were going to have to inhabit uninhabitable places. And what does that look like? And we have analogs of that now. There are parts of, you know, for instance, in Louisiana, there's Cancer Alley, which is part of a neighborhood where literally everybody on that neighborhood or on that street either has cancer or knows somebody that has cancer. And that place is literally in the shadow of a massive rubber plant that has been leaking toxins into both the air and the ground for decades, right? So we know there are places already that are dealing with constantly being underwater, that are constantly awash in wildfires. You know, all of this stuff is already happening. So I didn't necessarily have to search deep and wide in my imagination for what it can look like for people to be in the process of adjusting to these catastrophes. You know, we were already really seeing it now. I think the only real leap of imagination that Dreaming Up the Book entailed was that by 2050, we would have figured out how to live in space. <laughs> that might be a little further out, although if, <laughs> if the billionaires of the world have any say, they might have that sooner rather than later. That's a great transition to this next question. And I want to get into a couple of the characters whose lives you're kind of giving representation to on the page. But what's effectively happened, and this is a kind of trope in dystopian sci-fi, is that the privileged, they decamp to some other place. Like, they'll go make life in a place that's safe for them, and then those without privilege, right, are the ones that are left behind. And in the world of Goliath, the dividing line is very much race, right? So black and brown folks are left on the earth that is destroyed. And then, the, as you were saying, the kind of billionaires or the rich white folks have decamped to the colonies. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting, I mean, there's so many things to talk about in this book, but one of the things that I found interesting, and this comes directly out of our present moment, is that you talk about how on the all-white space colony, 
they're learning about white supremacy, right? In a sense, like they're woke educated. And yet they are still existing in a world in which there is literal space apartheid, right? Like white folks go to the space colony, people who aren't white, they stay down on earth. So can you talk a little bit about that tension and kind of how, if you see that as the way that I think we'll hit this a couple of times in this interview, do you see that as the way that our world and culture is moving, especially given that, no spoiler here, except it kind of arrives near the end of the book, COVID, the coronavirus, is one of the catalyzing events that causes this massive, you know, environmental die-off along with all the other eco-catastrophe. So can you just talk a little bit about that as both the frame for the book and also kind of how you are mapping that out of our current moment? Certainly. I mean, I... You know, I didn't want there to be any sort of obvious villains in Goliath. You know, similar to Riot Baby, Mm -hmm. there's no personified antagonist. The antagonist is the system. So taking that to Goliath, you know, I didn't want there to be the sort of stereotypical white villains, right? Mm -hmm. I think what was more compelling to me and more interesting to me was the idea of people who are aware of their privilege and still feel as though they're able to exist beyond it. They're like, oh, I know this, you know, statistical illiteracy rate of this city. Well, like, what does that matter if you're still gentrifying the place? But it's this sort of, I'm patting myself on the back, like I would have voted for Obama a third time if I could type of white liberalism that I think we, you know, we see a lot. It's the type of thing that was very much parodied to great effect in Get Out. That's what I was just going to say. That's a line from Get Out. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so I think that's very much the reality that we live in now. You look, for instance, even in various circles of literature, whether it's young adult literature or even parts of adult literature, where you have these fields that are very much populated in publishing by a sort of liberal white middle class, sometimes upper middle class segment of society that feels and sounds very much aware of systemic racism, of white privilege, of all the ways in which oppression can map itself onto a people's and onto a country. They know all the right words. They've read all the right books, presumably. And yet we still have these power structures in place. And oftentimes they are active participants. These same people are active participants in a lot of the power dynamics with regards to race that we're currently experiencing. And that to me was very interesting, was you'd have these characters, David and Jonathan, actively say, oh, we're not going to be like the others, right? <laughs> like We're not like that. And there's this sort of the way in which we can sometimes, it's almost the opposite of sanitizing history. We make it more sort of crude and simplified than it actually was in that you can have, for instance, you know, white Americans look back at, say, for instance, the 1860s, the 1870s, be like, oh, we're not like the people that were lynching Black mm. Americans. We're not Jim Crow. We're not Jim Crow whites. Like we let people sit at lunch counters. We're not like those barbarians back then, as though that absolves them of their participation in current iterations of, you know, sort of racial apartheid or systemic racism. 
just to clarify for listeners, and I'm sure we'll get into this particular <laughs> part of the tale later, Jonathan and David are both of them are white and gay. So in many senses, the classic <laughs> gentrifier. So, you know, Jonathan returns from the space colony because his partner, David, has lost his mother. And they return to the space colony. And it's like, oh, we're going to make a new life here. And one of, again, which we'll get into later, one of the things that Jonathan seems to kind of not quite understand is that maybe people don't want you here or you don't have a kind of ease, an unhindered or facile way of accessing this place that leaves you totally untouched by the problems of the fact that you were gone and now you make the choice to come back. Maybe you could talk about why Jonathan initially wants to go back beyond David's mother, but what is the fascination or draw when it's such a horrible place? I drew a lot of inspiration there from Westerns. There are specific works, but also that sort of mythos of, oh, we're going to go out West and we're going to make a new life for ourselves. You know, that's where our fortune is. But also, even more personally, it's this idea of this other place, this alien place as a place you can go to where either your problems will be fixed or you'll be able to fix your problems or you can escape them entirely. You know, they'd say, for instance, you had a run of bad luck business-wise in the East Coast. You can go out West as a prospector for gold and you can sort of remake yourself. You can repair your relationship with your family by embarking on this endeavor to make a home together in this other place. There's this idea that oh, I just need to geographically shift myself wherever I go to, and then that'll make all my problems go away. That'll fix my relationship as if we move to this new place. Well, yeah, I think that's such an interesting thing because I guess it goes both ways. Now, in the real world, this move kind of confusing towards corporate America going to space, carving out space, which the message of that I think is very clear, like it's a new frontier to conquer or to start colonizing because Earth is obviously on a bad track. And <laughs> why fix that when you could just live somewhere else? So what do you think about this kind of like exit valve of space in the book? You know, I think it's interesting because for so long in science fiction, at least, we've thought of space as a frontier. It's our new West. It's where we're going to go. And it's so big that you can keep imagining space as a new place. And what I wanted to sort of play around with was this idea of space as a place that you're bored with. Like, it's, you know, the generation that comes after you isn't necessarily going to be that same sort of frontier class, that same pioneer class that looked all wide-eyed at the stars and we're like, oh, this is new. This is where we're going to explore. They're like, no, like I live in this climate-controlled environment with all these fake trees and all these fake buildings and all this fake everything. Nothing's real. My parents or my grandparents or whoever won't shut up about how wonderful space is because they came from, what, Earth? And like, I'm just so tired of it. I'm so bored of this middle class, upper middle class life that I'm living. I want something new. I want something dangerous. The closest thing that's new and dangerous is this planet that, you know, my forebears have left behind. And so let me let me try that out. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Tochi Anyabuchi about his latest novel, Goliath. We'll return to that interview in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
Gary Steingart on the line with us today. His latest novel is called Our Country Friends, and Gary's joining us to give us a book recommendation. Gary, what book are you going to recommend? This year, I think my favorite book this year was uh, Raven Leilani's Luster, which I think came Hmm. out a year ago. Just an incredible book. First of all, I've always wanted to write a short book, and I never can. This one, I think, is in the 230-page range. Kudos to any novelist who goes under 250. You are a master of whatever it is that you do. You're brilliant. And Raven Leilani has written this amazing book that's incredibly funny, incredibly sad by the time you get to the end of it. But also, and this is something I really miss, has so many sex scenes. I I love a good sex scene. It's really hard to write about sex. Holy crap. Like, I just left that book. My heart was pounding. These characters have such pretty awful sex, but still really beautifully detailed. So... So funny that you say that because in our interview, I, I wanted to ask you about how, because you, you have a lot of sex scenes in yeah. Our Country Friends. And I was I wanted to ask you how you approach a sex scene because it seems really hard. So to speak. No yeah. pun intended. I, yeah, exactly. No, I mean, I, I love to write crazier and crazier sex scenes. In this book, people have sex while wearing masks as a kind of fetish, you know, hmm. since during the pandemic. There's a scene involving a woman masturbating a man that takes like 10 pages to unspool, so to speak, and involves a horrible hair conditioner and all kinds of weird lather and strangely shaped pubic hair. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah. You get your $28 worth with this book if you're looking for a little arousal. Yeah, for sure. What about luster sex scenes did you like? There's a part of the book where it's just like, she talks about uh, the, the main character in the book um, works at a publishing company and she manages to sleep with just about everyone in the publishing company. And those I've never not hard, with. probably not hard. I've never worked at a publishing house, but because I have so many dealings with publishing houses, I find that stuff just like I can visualize every single person because I've dealt with, you know, just about every part of the publishing house and <laughs> this description. And it just, you know what it is? It's relentless. She writes about sex and relentlessly. It's like, and then I slept with this guy and it was like this. And then he had this kind of penis and I'm like, Go for it. Just go for it. Because so many writers, especially literary writers, are so absolutely scared and are just, you know, dickless or vaginalist when it comes to to writing anything about uh, something that consumes so much of people's lives and energy and et cetera. You know, and I'm like, well, no wonder nobody reads literature. If you're going to leave out one of the main components of our lives, then, yeah, I, I, I'd rather watch, you know, HBO as well. You know, so kudos to uh, to Raven. Well, that's a great recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? Raven Leilani, and the book is Luster, L-U-S-T-E-R, and it really is a lustrous book. Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you. We've been talking to Gary Steingart. His latest novel is called Our Country Friends. It's published by Random House. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Tochi Anyabuchi, author of Goliath. A couple of the other characters, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about both, you know, kind of like how they came to you, but also what they're doing in terms of adding kind of texture to this dystopian world that you're that you're revealing on the page. And that would be Lincoln or Link, as he's called, um, who's I guess he's a member of a demolition crew kind of that comes through to basically take down dilapidated or or ruined homes on earth and so i want to hear about him i also want to hear about sid um who starts out very dark story collecting (laughs) but also feels very much like our present so sid is out collecting cactuses 
basically basically from the wasteland and selling them to the white people that live on the space colony, right? So, um, and then her father dies in that first scene where we see her collecting those cactuses. And then finally, um, Bishop, who is a kind of spiritual leader, um, and he he keeps much of this disparate community together as a kind of, you know, like I said, as a spiritual leader, but he's also himself the survivor of a brutal prison riot, um, which is yet another kind of uh, an overarching theme, I think, for the novels also about incarceration, considered in different ways, like the earth effectively becomes a prison for those people that are left behind. So can you tell us a little bit more about those characters and kind of the weight that they're shouldering throughout the novel? Yeah, those three characters in particular were in many ways anchors for me in terms of You know, I have this locus in New Haven, this community in New Haven, but at the same time, I wanted this to be a story about so many disparate parts of America where this thing is happening, right? And so, you know, with Link, we have, you know, we get some of his his history sort of coming from out West. And what was fascinating to me about him was that he was sort of like the main character for me, at least in, you know, the earliest iterations of this story. And it's fascinating because he's like the least expressive of all the main characters I've ever written in (laughs) all of my stories. And I loved that about him because it presented this challenge where how do you, how do you dramatize that opacity? And at the same time, don't have a character exist entirely as this cipher, as this thing that, as this person that things happen to? How do you create a sort of fully blooded or as fully blooded a person as possible while at the same time having this character who struggles to know himself? You know, he's figuring stuff out about himself and he's unable to articulate a lot of his own interiority. And I don't know, just as a writer, that was a fascinating challenge for me. And so he was sort of the the beginning of a lot of this. And then Sydney came, you know, not necessarily as a as a foil to Link, but I don't know. I just she already I knew there was something tragic about her before I'd even like put together her entire history and backstory. And I don't know, she's such she was one of the most fun characters to write, or at least her scenes were some of the most fun to write. And over the course of the book, she does you know, provide a little bit of the spine for for what some of the community in New Haven sort of get up to. And I don't know, it was really cool, you know, using her history as an opportunity to explore other parts of the country and some of what, some of the other things that people get up to, this whole idea of like, selling cacti to people in space like that you know it was and it it was really fun to write those scenes and you know to write you know the scenes of her and her sister with the smugglers and that was like those were those were fun to write and i think between the the two of them between link and sydney they offered me a sort of emotional variety that I could delve into. One of the differences between Goliath and Riot Baby was, at least for me, I felt Riot Baby was at a very particular emotional pitch and either stayed that way throughout the book or just got even pitchier, I guess you could say. Whereas with Goliath, I felt I was able to engage in a greater variety of of tone, of mood. I could be, I had more space to be funny. I had more space to be, 
sad, but a sadness that was leavened with all sorts of other things. It wasn't just angry, right? And Link and Sid gave me opportunities to sort of do that. And then, and then Bishop, oh my goodness, I love that character so much. Um, I don't know, it was really cool to have this sort of, you know, this play on the the preacher guy, right? Who's who's just in the, he's part of the neighborhood. He's a unifying factor of the neighborhood and he just won't shut up about God. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, you wonder this dude who's so old, who's obviously seen so much and who persists in this faith in God, like what's his story, right? Because you know, he's seen some shit. Like he's, mm-hmm the way that the world is now, and by now, you know, the 2050s, you know, what he has seen, and yet he can still be this kind of sort of jovial guy bringing people together. He's got some darkness in his past. What's that like? Because oftentimes it'll be the funniest people, the most heartwarming people that do have this sort of this air of darkness around them. You know, it's like the, the funny guy in the crew that just has this, this aura of sadness about him that right. you can't quite pin right. down. It's almost like, you know, the, the clown who takes off his nose at the end of the day and just like, you know, weeps into his hands after he's got back from work. I don't know. It, it, I think it speaks again to the, the emotional tonal variety that I was able to engage in with this book. Like there, these are people with histories that don't, exist at the same emotional register. They vary. They they have all this scope. And that was, I don't know, that was so much fun to write. Yeah. Um, I'm curious why you chose New Haven, if there was a pointed reason for that. Um, because it seems like the some of the deindustrialization that has actually taken place there that you reference um, just in a little, these nuggets of history, uh, are very, you know, analogous with what is happening in 2050 there. So maybe you could talk about that connection. So Connecticut to me has often existed as, and it, it was something that I wasn't, that I didn't become aware of until later in life, but Connecticut very much seems to me or strikes me as a microcosm for America and in so many different ways with regards to uh, racial segregation, income inequality, deindustrialization, so many of the macroeconomic and macroscopic social dynamics that are often pointed to as explanations for why America is the way that it is, you can see in this experiment that is Connecticut. And so in many ways, it made sense that if I was going to tell a story about the country, I could set it in such a dynamic state. Another reason why New Haven was that it was the first time that I would be writing about home, quote unquote. You know, every story that I've written, at least one that wasn't set in a far-flung fantastical place, is about, you know, a place that I've either never been to or have only stayed in temporarily, whether, you know, some place that I studied abroad in or a place that I worked in briefly or what have you. And this was the very first time that I wrote and chose to, to write about a place that I'm living in, actively living in, and that I may be living in for the foreseeable future. A place that was very close to to me, to my heart, that was very sort of 
it was on the bone for me. And I'd never done that before. I, whenever writing about myself or things that are important to me personally, there's always been this remove, right? Whether, you know, using the fantastical as a layer of allegory for, you know, people or themes that I was very concerned about. But in writing about New Haven, it was almost as though I was removing that layer, even though this is a science fictional tale, like I'm writing about places that I actually and actively go to now. I'm writing about streets that I've walked down, neighborhoods where I've gotten my hair cut. I'm writing about places that have emotional resonance for me now actively. And doing that represented a challenge for me. And one of the things about Goliath was that in so many ways, I wanted to challenge myself as a storyteller. I wanted to write about something that I'd never written about before, which is home, um, oddly enough. I know for, for a lot of writers, home is the thing that they know the most about. And so it may be the thing that they feel most comfortable writing about. But for me, it was almost, it was like too close. <laughs> you know, it was, it was like, I know this place too well. And my experience of it is such that I'm not able to remove myself enough from it to be able to write about it. Um, and so navigating that gulf between where I have to stand to write about a thing and actively living in and embodying a thing was one of the most interesting parts about writing Goliath. And how about letting your imagination um, destroy a place where you have a, such an emotional connection? I mean, it's really easy in Los Angeles because it's happened so many times on screen. You don't even have to uh, use your imagination. The images are there for you. But in terms of New Haven, I don't, I don't know it as a, you know, a place that's been described much in science fiction. It's funny because, like, destruction is easy for me. But I think the thing that made me still capable of conceptualizing New Haven as a place that I that I loved and live in is that people are living their lives there. And so it's not just that people are struggling there. They're falling in love there. You know, they're getting their hair braided there. They're, you know, doing all sorts of normal, regular, degular people things. They're playing spades there. Like they're doing all of these things that people do over the, you know, you know, in the normal course of living, of, of being alive. And so I think holding on to that was one of the ways in which I was able to make it feel like, okay, this is still a real place that matters and that is treasured by people. This isn't just a, you know, a, a, a chessboard where I'm moving pieces. This isn't just some some dreamscape that I'm just like tearing apart and, you know, ripping things out and smashing mountains and being the sort of menacing, you know, jealous, terrifying God over. No, this is a place that is, you know, this is a place that people love. And even in this aftermath, even in this horrific aftermath, it won't stop being a place that people love. So that's kind of what I, I wanted to ask as we wrap up is kind of how you locate hope in the midst of dystopia. Um, because, you know, even the characters that we're mentioning, right, we have like two gay men who are in love with each other and trying to manage a new life. Um, Lincoln and Sid, you know, kind of partnering up. You've got even Bishop is kind of the the core figure that seems to find hope as something that can that you can carry through and that carries you through, um, you know, tragedies. So I'm wondering, I guess, like, yeah, how do you vouchsafe hope in the midst of dystopia? And what do you want readers to come away from this book thinking about 
desiring or hoping. Yeah, this idea that that hope is internally generated, and and that might Mm. it might sound, I guess, sort of self evident to to say something like that is like, oh, where does hope come from? It comes from you. No, but um, you know, this idea that you know you can create your own peace, and it doesn't have to be located in any sort of you know, macro conceptualization of a better material future for you, or even the Mm -hmm. idea of heaven, right? This thing that's waiting for you afterwards. I think hope is something that, you know, because I don't know, I think a lot about people that live in what you would say are hopeless circumstances, materially at least, and you look around them and there are no prospects for the material improvement of their lives. The mm-hmm. air quality is not going to get better. You know, they're not going to have greater access to water. They're not going to have statehood, what have you, right? And so it feels almost morally wrong. It certainly feels cruel to tell them, oh, hope for these things, right? Hope for the material betterment of your life. But that doesn't mean don't hope in general. Um, I think hope can be located in something like, I don't know, like the the sun will rise tomorrow and it's Mm. going to look beautiful. Or the stars. That's like a very haunting image. The looking up at the stars in Goliath is like a way of accessing hope. Exactly. Or like this person that I have a crush on is going to be at the work site tomorrow. Right, right. It can be, it can be things like that. And I think, you know, as, as we talk more and more about climate collapse. And as we see more immediately the ways in which the the planet is reacting to us human beings, I think that's something that I want to make sure that I keep in mind because a lot of people are going to suffer. A lot of people are going to endure titanic and incredible loss, and they're going to lose things that they won't be able to get back. I mean, a lot of the idea with regards to climate change is that a lot of it's irreversible. A lot of it's going Mm -hmm. to be irreversible and a lot of it's irreversible now, but we can't get rid of hope. You know, we can think differently about the things that we hope in or put our hope in, but I, I think that that human capacity for, I don't know, maybe this good thing could happen tomorrow. Or this good thing could happen in five minutes. You know, Lord willing, this good thing is happening now and I'm able to perceive it. That, I don't know, is 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 very important to me. And as I get older, it's increasingly important to me. It's the way that I'm able to combat this sort of cynicism that I might have about more, you know, macro political and economic trends and whatnot. It's like, oh, I don't know. I hope we'll get voting rights legislation passed. I, like, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know if I could if I can say that or if I'm even even justified in believing that there's that that's a reasonable outcome. But I can say, you know, I don't know, like I I hope people enjoy this video game that I wrote on or, you know, I hope, you know, I hope it's a little warmer tomorrow or I hope, you know, there are no clouds in the sky when I go out to watch the sunset today. You know, I I hope I'm going to put on a good, I hope there's going to be a good algorithmically generated playlist on whatever streaming platform I listen to my music on, you know, that can bring me joy. Um, and I think that's where I can locate my hope. And what about like a revolt? Do you see that 
happening on the on the planet uh, on the planet Earth when people are sick of the circumstances in which they live? I mean, is that within within the possibility of this book or other books of yours? I see it. I see it in places outside of America. I think in the United States, or at least in modern United States history, too many people have too much to want to sacrifice that or to sort of throw that on the pyre uh, in the interest of building something new. And that isn't to say, oh, there are too many middle-class people or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes you look Throughout history, in other places, it's oftentimes been the middle class, the doctors, the students, et cetera, et cetera, who have been the the ones to like light stuff on fire. But I think part of it is where you know there's so there's so much energy put into surviving that it can be difficult even to conceptualize. Okay, what would a different future look like? What would a better future look like? Um, it's it's just that I'm trying to heat my apartment right now because yeah. um, I got I got two kids and they are freezing and I don't have enough blankets in the house. And so I don't know that I have enough energy to think about, I don't know, like campaign finance reform or mm-hmm. like, you know, staging a, a sit-in at City Hall or what have you. But maybe that's a failure of imagination on my part. You know, you look at, you look at, you know, Venezuela, you look at places, you know, historically throughout throughout Africa, you look at, you know, even the history of, of Eastern Europe, you don't even have to go as far back as, as you know, the French Revolution to, to see these things in action. There, a lot of these things are happening now. I think, I don't know what conditions or ingredients would have to be in place for that sort of thing to happen in the United States. We're a very big country. And there are a lot of different realities here, a lot of different realities here. So what would it take to bring people uh, to a sort of critical mass where they would be able to engage in revolution as sort of popularly depicted or imagined or what have you? I don't know what that I don't know what that looks like. I I know that a lot of things are already happening simultaneously. You have people protesting in the streets. You have sort of insurgent legislators that are fighting for the good of the people. You have a lot of things happening simultaneously, all of which I think are necessary, many of which are sort of quiet behind the scenes things that you don't really talk about, that don't really get into the news. You know, the, the, it's the work done by people that the people for whom getting credit is the least important part. And that, I think, is the more revolutionary thing, personally. Let's take that hope and revolutionary hopefulness <laughs> um, with us. And thank you so much. We've been speaking with Tochi Onyebuchi, author of Goliath. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was such a wonderful conversation. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Vladen. Teasley-Vladen.